Hey there, this is Brent Levy, the pastor of the local church, and I'm recording this on January 21st, 2024. And it's been 106 days since October 7th, 2023, when Hamas militants carried out horrific attacks on Israel, taking over 200 Israelis hostage and brutally murdering 1,300 others. It was the deadliest day in the nation's history. As expected, Israel retaliated with tremendous force. As of today, the Palestinian death toll in Gaza has surpassed 25,000, among them nearly 10,000 children. According to the United Nations, around 2 million people have been internally displaced, and famine and illness remain a grave concern. UNICEF, in fact, recently declared Gaza to be the most dangerous place in the world for children right now. The situation is incredibly dire. Ever since the war broke out, I have prayed and lamented. I've wondered what more I could do. I've seen hot takes all over the internet and read countless articles about the history of the conflict. I've been hesitant, frankly, uh, confession, to, to say a whole lot because I know that the situation is fraught and I don't necessarily feel well-equipped or equipped enough to do so. It seems too big, too complex. As somebody with a Jewish heritage, my entire father's side of the family is Jewish. My heart has broken for the Israeli people and the terror that they've experienced, the trauma that they endured on October 7th, their worst fears realized anew. And at the same time, I've been horrified by the disproportionate Israeli response that seems to hold little regard for human life. Homes and hospitals leveled, turned to rubble, aid held back from those who need it most. The Reverend Dr. Munter Isaac, pastor of Evangelical Lutheran Christmas Church in Bethlehem, in a Christmas Eve sermon, described it as genocidal, and it's hard to disagree. There's a lot I don't know. There's so much I don't understand. I don't know how this conflict finds its end. I don't understand how peace can possibly come through more violence. I've wondered how I should think about the conflict as a follower of Jesus. I've wondered how we got here. I've questioned how I'm called to respond faithfully. Maybe you have too. And so that's why I've invited my friend Brian Newman to join me in conversation. Brian is a friend of the local church. He's a pastor. He's someone who has made countless trips to the Holy Land with a particular emphasis on peacemaking. He has friends on both sides of the war, and he's been a faithful conversation partner for me in helping understand all that's going on. So I wanted to share it with you. I'm grateful that he's offered his time to help me, to help us better understand what's happening and how we might respond. So here's my conversation with Brian. I have the great uh, privilege of being here, being joined by my friend uh, Brian Newman, who uh, is a husband, he's a father, uh, grandfather, he is the graduate of, uh, or a graduate of Fuller Theological, not the only one, but a graduate of Fuller Theological Seminary, um, the Mission Outreach Pastor at Living Word Community Church in York, Pennsylvania. Uh, Brian, you're also the Executive Director of the Isaac Ishmael Initiative Seeking Shalom, among Christians, Jews, and Muslims in the Middle East and beyond. And uh, that work in particular is why I've invited you here. It's it's led you to take countless trips to the Holy Land and develop some uh, deep friendships among Israelis and Palestinians. Uh, and I think it gives you a unique perspective on the current conflict, especially based on conversations we've had. And so um, I, I'm so glad that you've taken some time uh, to be with us and help us unpack um, 
uh, everything that's going on in uh, in Gaza and in the Middle East right now. Thanks, Brent. All right. Thanks. Thanks, Brent. Good to be with you. So I remember um, shortly after October 7th, uh, I, I sent you a text and, and I just to check in and I said, Brian, how are you feeling? And you said something like, uh, I feel like I've just been punched in the stomach. And that was like October 8th or October 9th. It's been it's been 100 days um, now, at least. Um, and I wonder how that has evolved for you and how you're feeling uh, you're feeling today. Well, um <clears throat> I think I feel like a lot of people who are familiar with the region that the escalation over the last hundred days and the loss of life, um, I, I still feel like that. I still feel like I've been punched in the gut and um, pretty pretty hopeless at points, you know, based on just how human beings interact with each other and how much hatred there is and how much division. So I, I kind of feel like I did a hundred days ago. Um, maybe, maybe a little bit, uh, uh, more hopeless actually in, in some ways. Hmm. I have every, um, belief that we're going to, we're going to get into a little bit of that. Um, and, and why, so I don't want to, I don't want to leave us there. Um, but I do want us to think, you know, broadly, uh, can you can you help us sort of understand, um, give us a historical overview of the origins of the conflict between Israel and Palestinians in Gaza? It feels, it feels um, like there's just so much, and so you know, from from your perspective, Brian, like what do we need to know um, at a, at a you know at a, at a high level to just be able to wrap our minds better around what's happening uh, today? It's a, good, it's a good question, and I think it's very important that um, this conflict doesn't happen in a vacuum. So it is really important that people understand uh, history, at least of the last 150 or 200 years, in what we call the Holy Land, which would be uh, what is today the state of Israel and the Palestinian territories, which I would and that includes the West Bank and Gaza. So just for terminology. So really, I start the the history of the current conflict in kind of the mid 19th century in Europe. So if you know anything about Europe in the mid 19th century, there was this huge movement toward nationalism in places like Russia and Germany the Austro-Hungarian Empire started in the 1860s. And in the midst of that fervor, kind of this nationalistic fervor, there was a guy um, born in 1860 by the name of Theodor Herzl, uh, an Austrian Jew. And when he got into his 20s in the 1880s, he said, hey, why don't the Jews have a homeland? And uh, Herzl was agnostic, maybe a an atheist, so his steps into this conversation was really about nationalism and it wasn't a religious conversation. Now, I realize we're going to talk a little bit about a religious conversation in a little bit. But so I think it's very important to understand that Jews, just like Germans and Russians and Austrians and Hungarians and others, Prussians, had something in them that they said, we want our own land. We want our own place. Now, partially that was for safety reasons, for security. Um, the pogroms in Eastern Europe and 
Uh, Russia were just starting. The Russian Revolution would come in 1917 and would, um, you know, really push Jews much faster out of Russia. And my family was part of that kind of movement away from the pogroms. So, so I, I think it's important to understand that Jews started to go to the land uh, where where the state of Israel is today in the in larger numbers in the late 19th century because they were looking for a place to belong for their people, which is not un, unlike many other people. Um, it was not at first a religious movement at all. And then there's the question of, well, was anybody in the land? And um, there was in the 19th century, the Ottoman Empire ruled Palestine and there were people in the land. Uh, they were Arabs, they were Bedouin, uh, they were Palestinians who had been there for thousands of years. Um, they were not an organized bunch. They were a very dis disparate, sort of independent tribal peoples. And that's what the Jews went into. That that's, was what the land was in the late 19th, early 20th century. One other thing about this, the first Zionist Congress, so... Zionism is the idea of uh, the Jews should have their a homeland, a national homeland. That's what Zionism is, is the belief that physical land belongs to or should be the property of the Jewish people. Um, so um, the first Zionist Congress, which Theodore Herzl organized, was in 1897 in Switzerland. And that's where both the nationalistic fervor and the religious overtones really started to be talked about. Okay, this is not just about national ethnic people. This is also about a religious people, or at least some Jews being religious. And could there be a homeland? And by the way, um, until 1917, the Jews were looking at Argentina, uh, Uganda, Palestine, maybe somewhere else also as a potential land, just so everybody knows. Um, and obviously they, they didn't go to those places, but those were options. Is that a helpful start? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's, uh, that's really helpful, especially this idea of, of, of a land um, and, and, and Zionism. One of, you know, one of the things that I, um, I hear often is this sort of conflation uh, between Israel and the Bible and uh, the nation of Israel today. And so I wonder if you could talk uh, a little bit about that and just, just give us some clarity. Are we talking about the same thing? Uh, and if not, help us make sense of, of those distinctions, Pastor. Well, yeah. Okay, let, let, me, let me give a, 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 a short answer to it because everybody who's probably listening to this or watching this has an opinion about this, whether they are religious or not. So... Most Jewish people, not all, but most Jewish people would say that the Hebrew Bible, which what Christians call the Old Testament, promises the land of Israel um, to the Jewish people in perpetuity, forever. And there are passages in the Old Testament in the Hebrew scriptures that would point to that. Um, Many, many Christians, especially evangelical Christians, conservative evangelical Christians, uh, for a different reason, 
believe that the Jewish people belong to that land, um, partially because of the Hebrew scriptures, but partially because of a system of theology that started in the late 19th and early 20th century called dispensationalism. That is a distinctly Christian theology. It's not a Jewish theology. Um, can you, can, and you then, define, can you define dispensationalism? Just sure. Dispensationalism believes that um, when G, after Jesus came, the church dispensation or the church age started, and the age of Israel had have, has been suspended. There's a parenthesis that we're living in right now, so that the old the the Jews the Israel of the Old Testament is kind of in suspended animation right now. This is now the church age, and the church age will end at some point, and then the Jews will continue or continue again to become the people of God. This, you, this happens almost always uh, in a, a literal 1,000-year millennium after Jesus returns a second time. Um, so... Um, Dispensational is this I, dispensationalism basically says the the Jewish people still are God's people fully the land belongs to them and uh, this is will be fulfilled in in history as well it is it is it makes very strange bedfellows between religious some religious Jews religious and Israeli uh, Jews and conservative Christians who both believe for different reasons that the land belongs to the Jewish people slash Israel, Eretz Israel, uh, the land of Israel for all time, forever. Um, okay, so my response to that is you have to, um, so I, I don't hold to a dispensationalist belief. So if I did, there's a sort of an out from what I'm about to say, because the argument in dispensationalism is that, well, the Jewish people are kind of in this suspended animation now. They're, they're, they're God's chosen people, but they, they, they're not acting like it, and they don't have to act like it because they will in eternity. But for anybody else who just generally speaking believes that the Jews are God's chosen people for all eternity, you only have two choices right now. One is if in fact that's the case, in other words, what God promised to Israel 3,000 years ago for the land, then they then Israel, the nation of Israel today, has to live up to the standards of the Hebrew Bible for the people of God. You have to demand that of Israel. Or you have to say there has to be another explanation for what the state of Israel is today. And I would say that it is largely a secular state for primarily the Jewish people. Not exclusively for the Jewish people, by the way, but primarily for the Jewish people. And I would say that it's difficult to argue, not impossible, but difficult to argue that the nation of Israel of 3,000, 2,000 years ago is the same as what was birthed on May 15th, 1948. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's where I end up. And quite honestly, it's in a, in a sense, having a position like that is, is actually easier 
to process about who Israel is and what they're doing now, then rather than saying, well, the national Israel of today is the people of God in the Old Testament, because if they are, they're sinning greatly against God. Mm -hmm. If they're a secular state, well, secular states act badly sometimes and mm -hmm. defend their interests and live by political and military norms that um, you don't find in the Old Testament in the Hebrew scriptures. And so in some ways, it seems that um, uh, folks, especially who, who want that sort of one-to-one -one correlation, are, are really trying to, to retrofit, for lack of a better phrase, the, their, the current situation on biblical uh, context. Is that, is that fair? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. That's, that's really helpful. Um, um, really helpful, and and especially the distinction you made between the secular state and um, and and the the religious uh, land, and, and and so speaking of, um, you know, a religious or theological lens, I wonder if you can help us. You know, you've done you've done good historical and political work, um, but what about what about theological? Like how um, how do, how are you thinking about this as as a pastor, as a follower of Jesus? Um, what's, what's the lens through which you are, um, not only thinking about this, this war, um, but also how have you thought, um, about and gone about your work of, um, uh, of peace building, um, in, in the Middle East through a religious or theological lens? Well, um, what I say to people when we go to, to Israel and to, Palestine is when I bring people there. The first couple of days that we're together on a week long or 10 day trip, I say we, we go up north to the north of Israel and the Sea of Galilee and we we focus pretty exclusively for two days on the person of Jesus and Jesus as a rabbi, a first century rabbi, and how followers of a rabbi, every boy in the Middle East, uh, every Jewish boy in Palestine at the time of Jesus would want to follow a rabbi like it was their passion. And the vast majority of little Jewish boys couldn't do that because they weren't smart enough or they, you know, worked in their father's carpenter shop or, you know, they were they were laborers um, and a, a select few sometimes would be allowed or permitted to follow the rab a rabbi. And the idea in the first century was that when you follow a rabbi, you want to become just like that rabbi, exactly, in every single way. And I, I really focus out, down on this the first couple of days, because for the next three days after we leave Galilee, we go into the West Bank, we talk to, Jew, we talk to an Israeli settler, we talk to a Muslim imam, a Palestinian imam, we cross a checkpoint between Palestine and Israel. We do, we go to Yad Vashem, which is the Holocaust Memorial Museum. Um, my, my point in saying all that is that my starting point from a theological lens is I must, I must invite Jesus into this mess because without him and without, without who he is, what he taught, and also what he said he came for, for humanity, this conflict is just overwhelming. It, it just, it, it almost makes me feel like I'm drowning if 
the person of Jesus cannot or will not be in the conversation. And all due respect to my fellow Jews, I come from a Jewish background, and my dear Palestinian Muslim friends, I don't think Islam or Judaism gets you there. I don't think there are very viable peace avenues in Islam and Judaism, at least as it is played out today. I'm not making this big, huge, you know, condemnation of Islam and Judaism. I'm just saying how how Israeli Jews and how Palestinian Muslims oftentimes work out this intractable conflict is not in peace-loving, peaceful ways. It's in violent ways. And I understand that because I'm human like everybody else. And I, I would love to strike out in vengeance, whatever side. I mean, I, you know, um, so, so that's my starting point is I think the, the radicalness, the, the almost revolutionary things that Jesus brought is, is the path we need to engage. Um, so look, I'm often talking, especially to Palestinian Muslims about Jesus. They, they have no problem with that because he's part of the Quran and everything. Israeli Jews have a hard, much, much harder time talking about Jesus, Jesus than Muslims do. But I, I think that theologically has to be the, the foundation of it. And then the other is, I would say this, look, um, the, the Old Testament and, and the New Testament, and the, at least the background to the New Testament is full of just terrible, terrible violence. And, you know, we, we tend to read the New Testament through a very sanitized lens. Um, you know, Rome, Rome was very, very antagonistic toward both the Jewish people and Christianity. Um, it, you know, Jerusalem was destroyed in 68 AD by the Romans. I mean, just there was wholesale slaughter and people being disp displaced. So I, I kind of feel like what's happening now, this is part of what, oddly enough, what redemptive history actually looks like. Um, if Jesus says that he's come to seek and to save the lost, well, I, I know no more no greater place than in Israel and Palestine right now where people feel lost. And if Jesus's mission was that, we should embrace that. <laughs> what about, what about for, uh, uh, thank you. Um, first, second, what about, what are the, the theological religious stakes there now in this current, uh, current conflict in the current war? Um, or is it more, uh, sociopolitical? Um, with with religion kind of baked in? <clears throat> the, the place where it's religious is this. Jerusalem is central to all three of the Abrahamic faiths. So when you see that at the, uh, at the Wailing Wall and at the Dome of the Rock, there's all this conflict that ends up being violent. I mean, let's, let's, just, let's just say it. Um, you know, for Jews... Jerusalem, you know, Yerushalayim, the place of peace is, you know, the Jews Mecca. <laughs> um, and while Jerusalem is not the most important location for Muslims, it is very important. It's where uh, Muhammad had a vision, was transported there. Um, and, and of course, for, for Jews, uh, for Christians as well. 
so, but, but besides that, I think that religion is largely kind of a smokescreen to the political and social and military that's going on here. Um, you hear these statements all the time that, you know, especially Iran has said, the mullahs have said they want to wipe Israel off the face of the earth. That That's kind of couched in, oh, well, that's what Islam calls us to. It, it's much more political than it is religious. Um, so I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't paint this primarily as a religious fight. I know that the Western media does, but I think it's much more geopolitical, um, with Iran and Saudi Arabia and then Western powers such as the U S really having a, a proxy war, um, as much as anything. Well, one of the things that you told me um, recently that I thought was so um, just a, a profound insight uh, is, is that essentially uh, the two sides, um, the the Palestinians in Gaza uh, and the uh, Israelis, are are essentially fighting for two different things. You told me that that the uh, uh, for Palestinians, this is a, a fight for justice. And for uh, uh, those in Israel, it is a fight for survival, which, you know, as you said that, what uh, what I realized is that, that they're flying at two different levels. You know, mm-hmm. that those are two very different conversations, hard to find a third way, hard to find a common ground then when when those are the stakes uh, and those are the priorities of the conversation, it seems to me. Um as a, a naive observer, um, I, I wonder uh, if, if you could say more about that um, uh, and, and, and if, if that's still true um, from our conversation a couple weeks ago or, or, you know, just kind of what you're hearing because you're in touch with a lot of folks um, on, you know, you have Palestinian friends, you have Jewish friends, um, you know, what are some of those things that, that you're hearing and how is it a form, informing how you're thinking about um, about the conflict. This is perhaps the most important thing I've learned in the last hundred days. Um, I first read this uh, by from Thomas Friedman of the New York Times, who has lived and worked in the region for 40 years, both in Beirut and in Jerusalem. And he first pointed out this idea that for the Palestinians, this fight, not just from October, but the first intifada, which means uprising in Arabic, which was in the late 1980s, and then the second intifada, which was from the year 2000 to 2005, those are fights for justice. Okay, what's been unjust to them? Well, Palestinians, whether they're Muslim or Christian or not religious at all, will tell you that uh, for really the last hundred years or so, the Palestinians have been pushed around and then pushed off of their land um, almost indiscriminately. And they want justice for that. They, they want right. We, they want things that have been done wrong to them to be righted <clears throat> for, for Israelis. And, and actually, you know, there are 14 million Jews in the world. That, that's all. Post-Holocaust, every one of us Jews, we 
are worried about our survival. It doesn't matter if you're a wealthy New York Jew in New York, or if you're a religious Israeli or a secular Israeli, um, there is something very, very deep in a person's psyche when one third of your people are killed during World War II. So I grew up with that sense of survival instinct and that's what's happening today as well. That Israel's response to being attacked as they were on October 7th is perceived, and I'm not, I'm not making a judgment of right and wrong here. I'm just saying that it's perceived by many, many, many Israelis across the political spectrum is a matter of survival because their perception is that there is a people out there, whether they are Palestinian or Iranian, Hezbollah, Hamas, put whatever label on it you want, that they want us destroyed. And so as I interact with those two worldviews and those two perspectives, I understand the second one pretty easily. I grew up with it. It was sort of the air that we breathed. I didn't. I couldn't even articulate it until somebody told me what this is. Oh, this is a survival mechanism, self-defense mechanism. What I've had to do. Is well, and to just listen. to be clear, Brian, just to be clear, right? You, you, um, you were raised in a Jewish household, Jewish family, right? Yeah. And 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 then converted to yeah. Christianity, and your Jewish heritage, like you're stuck with that, right? So, so when you use words like us and things like that. I just wanted to, you know, make it clear for our audience, you know, yeah. the, the, you are a Christian pastor with a Jewish lineage and, and Correct. Christian. Yeah. And, and I, and I grew up in a very culturally Jewish context where my grandfather was an Orthodox religious Jew in New York city. So and my parents were more secularized, but self-identification was very much, Jewish. And most of my dad's family in Hungary was killed in the Holocaust, which uh, that was the narrative I grew up with. So that was that's that side of it. What I've had to listen and learn so much over the last 10 years or so <clears throat> is listening to Palestinians and what their reality is. And by the way, there are many Palestinian Christians and Palestinian Muslims. So Palestinian and Muslim is not synonymous, okay? And the perspectives of Palestinian Muslims and Palestinian Christians is slightly different, but they both are seeking, at, at very best, God's justice to a situation that they have perceived has been very unjust for many, many decades. So this situation from October 7th is a continuation of that, of of them seeking justice. And so what we're seeing around, you might see it at UNC Chapel Hill, it's been at NYU in New York and many other places in America, are these protests that you see signs that say free Palestine and, and all of that. And I'm, I'm not agreeing with everything that's happened at those, but those are statements of seeking justice. And you're right, you made the point before Brent that while these, these are like two different trajectories or two different planes. And I, I would say, yes, they are. And our work as Christians, as followers of Jesus, is number one to identify what side of this do I understand better? Or am I more sympathetic with? Or no judgment here, 
<laughs> you know, you can, you can, you know, I, I understand the Jewish Israeli perspective. Okay. I, I, I'm not an Israeli, but I, I kind of get it. Whatever that side is not, we must do so much work to understand, to listen, to ask really, really good, sometimes hard questions, to, to have proximity with people who are on the other side. Um, I interact with Palestinians about once a week now, and I'll tell you, man, it is just gut-wrenching for me. It's complicated. I, 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 don't, I, I often get off calls going, gosh, I, I still don't understand everything that, that they're going through because there's so much history there. This one guy a couple weeks ago was saying, you know, my, my grandfather was removed from his land outside of Ramallah in 1948. And then he gave this whole story of where they had to move within Israel and where they kept getting kicked out until 1951 or 53 or something. And they finally settled in Bethlehem. I, I have none of that history. Um, so I'm not giving you a grand answer to the problem, except that I think we have to work hard at listening well to both of these narratives and not tuning them out. How, how, how has that changed you? How have your friendships uh, been how, how have they helped you uh, uh, to, as you say, um, I can't remember the word that you used, but but proximity. How, how has that proximity um, uh, uh, challenged and changed you? Oh, proximity is everything um, for, for all of us. I mean, you, you want to understand about homelessness? Go hang out with homeless people <laughs> and just listen to them and just try to understand them. Um, so I, so what, what it's done for me is, um, it's, it's humanized people for me. So I grew up that I thought that all Arabs were pretty bad people and Palestinians were clearly terrible people who, uh, were mostly terrorists and wanted to destroy me and my family and my people. That's how I grew up. So I've had a lot to unlearn around that. And the only way that could have ever happened is to actually get to know Palestinians. And um, so the, there's part of me that the, at my dark moments, I wish that I had never gone to Israel when I was 50 years old. I, I, I wish that I never met Arabs or Palestinians because this conflict is so hard because of that, because it's not. 24,000 random people I don't care about. It's, it's Palestinians. And I know some of their names. I know I've, I'm acquainted with one person who is a relief worker there who was killed about six weeks ago in Gaza. So when they're real people, the response is to weep and to mourn and to grieve and for me to cry out to God, to ask him to stop this insanity. And, 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 and Brent, just so you know, I mean, I, I feel as deeply on the Israeli side as for the, the, for the typical normal Israeli, just run of the mill, mostly secular Israeli, who's just trying to do life and the terror that they have felt over the last hundred days. And it's real terror that they, that they, they feel. 
Um, and those who, you know, there's, there's 7 million Israeli Jews in Israel and probably three quarters of them, two thirds, they really don't believe in God. I know that's confusing for all of us, but many, many, many Israelis really don't have much of a theological understanding of things. And so when you don't have a faith in God and this stuff happens, it, it's terrifying. It's, it, there's nothing outside of yourself that can bring redemption. And so I, I, I grieve with Israelis, especially Israelis who don't have faith. I grieve with them more than anything, you know. When, when uh, we were preparing for this conversation, um, you encouraged me to um, look up on YouTube the Christmas Eve sermon from the Reverend Dr. Munter Isaac, who I know is a friend of yours, who is the pastor uh, at Christmas Evangelical Lutheran Church there in Bethlehem. Uh, a powerful sermon, um, and we'll certainly post a link to it because I couldn't do it justice um, in you know a couple of sentences. Um, uh, but that's the church that that um, uh, the viral uh, Christ in the in the rubble nativity um, kind of made the rounds on the internet, um, and and he talked about it um, in the sermon. I wonder, Brian, what stuck out to you? What stood out to you um, in in his sermon um, that made it so impactful uh, and 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 was so needed uh, in this conversation? Well, I think it's a theme. It's a theme that we hold really strongly to in the Isaac Ishmael Initiative, and that is that um, God is always in the center of tragedy, not absent from it. And where that comes from, for me, where that started is with a, I'll tell the brief story, some of, some of listeners will know this already, but Elie Wiesel, the uh, Jewish-Romanian um, survivor of the Holocaust, wrote a book called Night. And in that, he tells a story of being in a concentration camp as a 14-year-old boy. And um, somebody had stolen bread from the kitchen or something. And as a consequence of that, as a punishment, they took that person who happened to be a child and they uh, brought all of the prisoners out in the courtyard and they hung the child from a tree and Elie Wiesel is standing there watching this child struggle to breathe and the child is not heavy enough doesn't have enough weight for him to die right away so he's agonizing as the noose is around him and there's a man behind Elie Wiesel who is a rabbi and he says in Yiddish under his breath where is God now and Elie Wiesel stops and he thinks and he says to himself, God's there on the tree. Interestingly enough, Wiesel was not a follower of Jesus. He, he was a religious Jew, and, but he understood something of God being in the midst of tragedy. And so when Munter and his team and others decided that they were going to set up a nativity scene, that they took uh, some rubble from another place in the West Bank. They brought it into the church. They they laid it out in the church, and they put a uh, a baby, a, a doll, kind of a nativity of Christ, of Jesus, 
in and under the rubble. And I would say to any, because uh, I'll probably pass along this link to some Jewish friends uh, that I know. So to all of you, please don't be offended by that. I want to say that to my Jewish friends. Um, God is as much present with Israelis who are at the Wailing Wall every day since the war started, crying out to him. God's there, and God's in the rubble at the Lutheran Church in Bethlehem. And yes, God can be in two places at the same time. Um, and Munter understands that. Um, that's what moved me about his message, is that Jesus is, is not only observing the tragedy, he's in the tragedy and to use Miroslav Volf's idea, he is suffering in the tragedy that God suffers in the person of Jesus in, in this. And I don't think God takes sides in this. I think he weeps and mourns and grieves and suffers with the Israelis, with the Jews, as he did during the Holocaust, by the way. And he does with the tens of thousands, maybe a million now, Palestinians, not, who have, not only who have lost their lives, but who have become displaced mm -hmm. and who are on the edge of hunger, malnutrition now, cholera. And so Munter, I think, and that image that he had that idea for uh, the Christ child in the rubble moved me very, very greatly. Uh, a logical follow-up, I think, um, is, is, you know, as you name uh, uh, tens of thousands who have died, um, you know, upwards of 10,000 children uh, in Gaza, famine, um, uh, a million, if not more, displaced. Um, and, and you said yourself early on that, that there are times that you feel hopeless. Um, similar, I think, to, to the way that so many of us feel hopeless, helpless, even. Um, and, and so... In, in your experience, Brian, and, and knowing who you know and, and um, you know, the places you've been, what can we do? Uh, what, if anything, can we do? And, and especially as followers of Jesus, uh, as, as those following the way of Jesus, what, what are our next steps? Um, you know, if, if you're praying, what are you praying for? Uh, if you're taking action uh, beyond prayer, because prayer is indeed um, active, um, it, it moves us to action. It's the first step often. Mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, what, what could we do? Um, yeah. Yeah. It's, a, it's, it's important and it's a good question. And uh, I, I don't, I don't have like, you know, the profound answer that will, yeah, we'll give, we'll give everything. But um, one is we in the West, we have to have a, just a radical learning posture around Israel and Palestine and lean into that. Uh, I, I recommend for people to listen to or read uh, Al Jazeera in English. That's going to give a fairly pro-Palestinian perspective on the conflict. Uh, I would encourage people to go online and read. Um, there's free subscriptions right now or free several articles from various Israeli newspapers, the Jerusalem Post, uh, Haaretz, the Times of Israel, 
Each of them have different political leanings inside of Israel, but they do a fairly good job of representing that. I would really encourage people not to watch news about this. It's really gruesome right now. And um, I don't know that very many of us need those images in our heads and hearts. But I do, th I do think we have to become less ignorant and more understanding. Um, you know, there's two places in, in the Hebrew scriptures that talk about praying for the peace of places. Psalm 122 says, pray for the peace of Jerusalem, that it may go well. And, and that's not a statement just about the physical Jerusalem. That's about praying for the peace of, of powerful places in the world, the places where, whether they're religious or not, of, of power and influence. And so I think we need to do that. But but also, we're told in Jeremiah 29 that we are to pray for Babylon and we're to live in Babylon and pray for the peace and prosperity of the place. Um, look, if you want to think that Gaza City is Babylon, okay, I don't, I've heard that recently. I don't have a problem with that. Then follow what God tells us to do about praying for Gaza City and um, and I, I do think that is, it is active and it's work and it's, it takes resilience. And then the other thing is, you know, I, I've kind of recommitted myself to this over the last few months, even in feeling some despair. Um, when all this is said and done and settled, go visit Israel and the West Bank, like get on, get on a good tour. Don't get on a tour that gives you whitewashed stuff, like all due respect to all those tours, but it, I mean, if, if you have a burden, if, if you're a follower of Jesus and you have a burden about this and a calling, this, you can't do anything better than to actually go and become friends with a Palestinian and an Israeli, like real friends, and let your heart break when their heart breaks. I, I can't, you, I can't replace that. I can't like, and if you're at a university like UNC Chapel Hill or somewhere else, and you're able to go and hang out with Jews and Arabs and Palestinians because there's lots of them on campus, then find out how to do that. And right now you're gonna hear a lot of rage and you're gonna hear a lot of emotion and it should be that way. Mm -hmm. And that shouldn't scare us off. Like, so I've asked people, I don't live in a part of the country right now where there are a lot of Arabs or Jews actually. So it's a little bit odd for me. All of my relationships are kind of out there. But I have reached out to friends in New York City who I grew up with and who are very much on the kind of pro-Israeli side of things. And I've just reached out to them to see how they're doing and to listen to them. We're not really in the same places, but I just want to hear them and understand. And hopefully if they ask me questions, I can give some input. Some do, some don't. Um, so, and I, I, I think that why I'm so passionate about this is what I said at the beginning. Look, if, if you put a whole bunch of Jews in a room and a whole bunch of Muslims in a room and a whole bunch of Christians in the room, the difference should be that the Christians have a worldview that honestly, openly, and desperately seeks peace. And that's what we bring to the table. And we need to bring it to the table. We can't bail out now.
And that, and by the way, I think that's what Munter was trying to say and what he is trying to say, that Palestinians, Christians, and, and Messianic Jews, Jews who believe in Jesus, we can't get out of the, the way now. We can't be silent. Mm -hmm. We have to call for something higher than just killing each other indiscriminately. It was a real, a real convicting holding to account, um, mm -hmm. holding our, our feet to the fire in terms of what Jesus has called us to um, as his followers. So, yeah. Well, Brian, thank you so much for your time, for your witness, for um, your experience and, uh, and voice. Uh, a real gift. Uh, thanks for spending some time with us today. You're welcome. Thanks, Brent. Good to be with you.